All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, we've got Thanksgiving coming up here shortly. And the bottom line is all of us are not only wondering what is the food going to be like, we're also wondering what are those potential conversations we're going to have with friends and family. So what we're going to be talking about today, the whole reason why you should watch today is we're going to talk about how to effectively engage or not engage. And we're going to go over several questions that were presented to us by our viewers on topics they would like us to provide an argument for before they go into the gauntlet. That is Thanksgiving dinner. All of that and more coming up on this episode. Maybe you're driving down the road listening to this episode. We hope that you all have safe travels this Thanksgiving week. Thank you for joining us for this hour. And we hope that you walk away better prepared to have those conversations at the uh, Thanksgiving table. And we hope you'll join us in volley at the link in the description of this episode to let us know if we prepared you for a conversation that you didn't know you were going to have. Thank you for joining us. All right. I'm Nick Fradish, your host. Member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, an okay guy with us, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. We have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian. Hello. We have... He's not Christian Hines today? No, he's not you Christian Hines You messed that today. up, man. He's not Christian Hines today. I okay. took it away. He, if he can earn his last name back. All right. <laughs> then we have Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Thank you, Nick. And of course, Sour Patch Leds, our new producer, the one that's replacing Hamilton. That's right. I'm taking over slowly. We'll get there. I'm excited about today's conversation. All right. So listen, we're going to jump right into this. Um, we we actually put this question out there on our volley chat, which you can go and it, the, the links there in the uh, comment section, you can go in there, find that we went in our volley chat. We also went on to Twitter and we said, Hey, obviously some uncomfortable conversations could potentially come up whenever there are large family gatherings. Are there any topics that you would like us to help prepare you for, you know, when, when those things arise? And a lot of the feedback we got was was funny. Some of it was interesting. Some of it was a little bit sad, maybe even disturbing is the correct word. Um, some people's strategy was, I'm just going to avoid family altogether for the holidays, which again, I, I, find, I find disappointing because those family relationships and bonds are very important. There's a reason why the Marxists are always trying to tear down the family. It's because they want to replace it with the government. So don't give up on your family yet. They're worth fighting for. But we're going to go through a couple of things here because uh, first and foremost, there is a proper time to talk about these things and an improper time to talk about these things. And if you do decide to talk about them, there is a proper way to talk about it and an improper way to talk about it. So for all those people that said, why would you ever talk politics at Thanksgiving? I'll tell you why. Because in almost every family, there is one of two people, potentially both of them. One of them is the far left, you know, person that wants to know why are we even celebrating Thanksgiving? It's all a bunch of cisgendered white men enslaving indigenous persons, right? There's that person at the table, right? And then there's the crazy, maybe drunk uncle that yeah. is coming back and being like, Trump's going to get rid of you. Right? <laughs> so, so the whole thing is we're trying to figure out, all right, how, how can we potentially be the, the Switzerland you know, the, the reason in between the, the far left approach and maybe somebody, maybe an uncle that's had a little bit too much to drink that thinks that the solution is to just round up all the hippies and deport them to Cuba. Or if you decide not to be the Switzerland, <laughs> how to effectively do that. <laughs> or, or if you're a teenager, you just want to nuke everything. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's let's go through some of this. Lydia, what did you, you actually started kind of a list for us here on methods of engagement. Yeah, so we have a few different options when it comes to our family. I know that the holidays are 
kind of hard and kind of depressing for a lot of people, which makes me really sad. So in the interest of preserving some of our family bonds, I'm really going to recommend that we try to either find a good way to navigate politics or point our family away from it altogether if we feel like they can't handle it. So there's some strategies. We can avoid the family, like you mentioned. We can quietly observe what people are saying without trying to change their minds. We can actively stay away from politics altogether. We can set rules beforehand, change topics. Okay, real quick, I'm going to stop you there. The (laughs) moment I go anywhere and they're like, we're going to set some ground rules. I'm like, oh, well, I'll be breaking these later. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Okay, well, thanks for that, Nick. I appreciate that. Appreciate the the honesty. We have two further options. We can either adopt a laissez-faire attitude, which is whatever they want to do is fine. I don't care if people throw mashed potatoes or whatever. It's not a big deal to me. Whatever happens, happens. We're still family at the end of the day. And then the final option that I think is probably the best choice if you want to maintain those family bonds and like kind of change people's minds at the holidays is to engage constructively. This is kind of hard. You have to go into it with the right mindset. And I really hope that's what we're able to convey in today's conversation. Um, that's it. It's grounded very firmly in empathy and a lot of understanding of where other people are coming from because you know that you work better with someone else on your team. This is what I'm sure Nick and Tina work together as a married couple. It's what I have with my husband. It's wonderful. I hope that everyone has it to some degree, but it's this other perspective that you don't get from just yourself. Um, And you need to go into your conversations with your family, understanding that they're coming from different viewpoints. And that's okay. That's a great thing. I really love that part about America, that there's so many different perspectives that people can bring and that we all end up agreeing at the end of the day, even if we don't see eye to eye on absolutely every detail. So you really want to prioritize your family relationships over politics. We all know that when Aunt Martha dies, we're not going to be really upset that she never agreed with us about like, you know, flat tax rates or gas prices or whatever. The most important thing is that we still have that family at the end of the holiday. And I think I think this this year is going to be a little bit better. I think with Trump it was really super divisive and he's been in the news more lately. Not sure if we're going to be able to avoid all those conversations. But it's good to prepare yourself and just be ready for that. So we have a list of several. I didn't count the questions. We said five to ten questions. I think we came up with like seven or eight. Um, Probably the biggest things that you're going to run into are some of the stuff around COVID and some of the stuff around some of the trans stuff, which I'm not sure how much we want to get into that. But I I think that one's so to your point, I think that one's interesting because Again, going back with the, okay, what are, what happens when families come together? Well, one of the things that often happens is students come home from college. Yes. Right? Students come home from college, and they've been in this environment, which, I mean, there, there's about a probably, I would argue, an 80 to 90% chance if your kid has gone off to school right now and they've if this is their first year away or whatnot – they're probably getting exposed to a lot of you know new ideas that maybe they never heard before, maybe they never considered before, although I think more and more we're seeing it in middle school and high school. Uh, but it, it's probably one of the first times that they've been in such an immersive environment to where the, the you know certain terminology or certain methods of approach or certain methods of address or things like that, they've been immersed in that now for at least a few months, maybe a year, maybe more, depending on how long they've, they've been in college. And now all of a sudden they're going back into, you know, the world that they grew up in, which in many respects is going to be, especially if it was a conservative family, significantly different. And so one of the things to keep in mind is when that, when that student comes home, that can be a major cultural shift, cultural shock taking place. And like one that you've talked about many times on this show. Well, my college experience is very different. I mean, you, you guys, you and Hamilton both had kind of the traditional college experience, um, you know, you well, you were at Liberty, so yeah, I, did, I was, did. I, I was not exposed. So, uh, so, yeah. so yeah. Christian had. I went to JMU, but but I went to JMU at the beginning of this like woke revolution that has been going on within the university system. I mean, the university system has been left wing since like the seventies or sixties, but it didn't become. I I differentiate between being liberal and being like leftist. I think there's absolutely a difference between those two things. Here's a good example. I have an aunt who's a bleeding heart liberal. I would never describe her as a leftist. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I have other family members that I would describe as leftists though. And what I mean by that is, is that you can be a liberal person and yet actually genuinely want to coexist with people. Yeah. Enjoy the company of other people that you disagree with, laugh at the dinner table with them. You're not, 
necessarily, I mean, unfortunately, you're still trying to impose your views at the ballot box, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but you don't go on social media and lambast the rest of civilization as being against you. You don't say the system's rigged against you. You don't say, I want to tear everything down. You're voting for Democrats because you think you want to help people and you think by voting for them, they're going to, you know, increase the social safety net or something like that. And they're going to help people. Your intentions are inherently good. And you don't necessarily think that everybody who disagrees with you is an evil human being that needs to be silenced and shut up and and reprimanded by the state. And then you have leftists. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that have taken over the university system. Those are the ones that around the Thanksgiving table actually want to impose their views on you. Um, and I think that well, and think you should be. I mean, and by impose, I mean they think you should be punished, canceled. Oh, lose I know. The business. Going back to what Lydia was saying earlier, like one thing that I know from firsthand experience, and that I think a lot of people experienced over the last two years, especially last year, is the COVID component of this. I know family members that were like, "I don't want to see you if you're not vaccinated." Yeah. Yes. I don't want you to be here for Thanksgiving rest with the rest of the family if you don't take the vaccine, and. Look, fast forward a year later, and I wonder how many people are actually going to be making that argument now after everything we've seen over the past year. Because it was about a year ago, right, that, that the vaccine was really being ramped up and it was really being pushed on people. I remember it was, what, it was about a year ago that Biden was trying to literally mandate it yeah. for, for government employees and yeah. the Supreme Court had to strike it down. That was like at the peak and COVID was still raging, like like in a big way. I mean, I remember I caught COVID in, in Christmas last year. So it was about this time last year that COVID was still absolutely still an issue. And didn't you catch was, COVID from your vaccinated family? Yes. Um, <laughs> Just wanted to point that on, out. On Christmas. <laughs> so great. Oh, yeah. What a great Christmas that was. Wow. Um, but my, my point is, is that like there's a lot of people that are either going to be doubling down on that or they're going to be looking for a pandemic yeah. amnesty. So so yeah. let's so that was I mean that is one of the questions. I want to I, I want to propose yeah. something real quick. Nick, why do you think the dynamic amongst family discussing politics is so unique compared to another situation where you might be speaking with a fellow student or a coworker? Like what makes this situation so uh have so much weight to it? You don't choose family. I mean, fam family is someone yeah. now obviously you can walk away from family. But they don't stop being your family, right? You you can walk away from just about any other acquaintance and they stop being that thing, right? They're no longer your acquaintance. They're no longer your friend. They're no longer your coworker. When it's family, you can walk away all day long. They're still your mom. They're still your dad, brother, sister, you know, whatever it is. And so there's always going to be that component there that is, is important. And now, obviously, if you spend little to no time with them, that that bond might not be as significant as it otherwise could be, right? but it's still there. And there, there's still shared experience, usually speaking, Within it, when a family structure, there's shared experience, there's shared history, and and that's yeah. Can I know. ask another question too? Is how now? What do you think the dynamic is when a lot of these kids who are coming back from college and whatnot are coming home for their first Thanksgiving or second Thanksgiving or whatever, and they've usually been at the kid table the yeah. whole time ah. during Thanksgiving, and this is their first foray into the adult table. And they're looking for something to offer. And yeah. so they just want to engage in the adult conversation that they've been kind of excluded from for their childhood. This is actually one of the reasons why uh, we have very grown up conversations with our kids um, about every different Theology, topic you could think of. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and their constructive conversations where we're asking, well, why do you think that? What why what makes you, um, you know, have this viewpoint because it's really important to Nick and I that our kids actually believe these believe what they believe because they've mentally broken it down and understand it for themselves and we haven't just prescribed it to them. Well, we had, we had so tell me, tell me what you think about the mindset of a of a young adult coming into the adult table for the first time. So I want to I want to segue that. To answer that question, because one of our one of our people from Bali, Jacob, chimed in and, and he and he said, Look, he goes, There's one family member that sometimes it's hard to talk to, but that's more of a result of basically, you know, being young kind of at a, at a certain stage of their life. And what he said is that he, he really needs more empathy than he needs confronting. Mm. Um, he said it, it's it's a hard issue. And and you know, basically saying that the the ideologies can kind of work themselves out, out later. And and I and I think to some degree that's I, I think to some degree that's true. Um, we, we've 
we, we used to make this joke, and one of the reasons why I think conservatives at large weren't all that concerned, super concerned about college was it's like, okay, once they leave that environment and they get into the real world and all of a sudden it's paying bills and paying taxes and yeah. having to show up to work on time, they're going to be free from all that. The Twitter staff is proof of that not being true. <laughs> yeah. true and, yeah. But in, until, but that's the problem is, is that it, if when you have essentially a large enough sector of the population that is really bought into these ideas, they don't see it as, oh, well, that was something that I kind of like considered in college. Now it's, it's an integral part of their life and social structure. That's very, very different for them. And when they're they're coming back to the family, one of the things that I've I've observed is when they're when they're willing to come back with the family and engage, that's a good sign. If they're coming back and they want nothing to do with you, that's horrible. That means you you've already essentially been replaced with another family structure or whatever yeah. it is. But when they're coming back and they're willing to engage, if the moment they're willing to engage and they and they step into that environment where now they're at the big, they're at the big table. And they get shot down because you're a young, stupid kid in college. Right. You don't know anything. You're 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 really feeding right into what again the, the you know this other element is telling them uh, about who you are and what you are and what you mean to to that environment. Right? They're not your real family. We're your real family because they're you know misogynist and sexist and bigoted and crazy anti vaxxers and, and crazy and you know whatever yeah. it is. And so I, I do think that there's, I, I think it's very, very valuable to in, engage with someone and to treat them with a certain degree of respect that, hey, we're acknowledging that you're not a kid anymore, right? Yeah, yeah, you're not as experienced, you know, so you, you, don't, get to, you don't get to be disrespectful and whatnot, but respect generally is a two-way street. When so someone is saying something, and, and if you're engaging by asking them questions, and again, we, we talked about this earlier. In fact, Tina, Tina tried this on me yesterday. Really? Instead of asking me why I was doing something, she said, oh, what made you do that? What made you and, do it that way? And I immediately said, oh, well, because of this, this, and this. And if she had said, why did you do it that way? I'd have been like, well, why not do it that way? Well, it's because we were talking about you constructing something, and I'm usually the one that constructs things. Okay. So you would have automatically thought I. You know, wait until the, uh, those kids that are at the university system who used to sit at the kitty table come home and then tell you that the kitty table is a heteronormative white, <laughs> white supremacist colonialist form of capitalist oppression. Yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I bring that up. Jokingly, though, because I do think that going back to your point earlier about like like cultural shocks. Right. I I, I think it's worth reminding people that like, well, one of the problems that we have as conservatives is that there's a a um, incentive to just build um, structures that reinforce power. And and I, I'm I know I'm sounding like a leftist when I'm saying this, right? But yeah. but what I mean by that is is that if you're raising your children to just simply respect whoever the to authority in the room authority. is, mm -hmm. and then they go to the university and then suddenly the authority is radically different than the authority that they grew up with at home, don't be surprised when they come home and they start parroting the talking points of those yeah. leftists at the university yeah. system that we've been talking about previously. And so it, it just be, I, I think I, the reason I want to bring that up is because there's a lot of parents that are not prepared to even receive their children in a different environment than what they grew up in. And yeah. so it comes as a shock. And when something comes as a complete shock, you're less obviously prepared to respond to it in a intelligent fashion. Whereas exactly. if you anticipate ahead of time that something's going to happen, you can formulate a response to it that isn't going to be taking you completely by surprise. Well, and, and to your point too, I think, I think part of the shock too is when somebody, somebody doesn't just come and say, you know, I'm, I'm a communist, right? <laughs> Although uh, nowadays, maybe they want, but no, it's the whole, it's the whole like, oh, the kitty table is the heteronormative, you know, cisgendered, you know, patriarchal capitalist structure. It, honestly, one of the, one of the greatest things to ask in some of those things is, is what do you mean? So when you say capitalism, what do you mean? Like, I don't understand why that's, I don't understand why that's necessary to the other components. What do you mean by that? Like, what is capitalism? Um, and, and the only reason I, I say that is I remember I've told this story before when I was in college, I was in an English class, English class, not economics, not business administration, English class, reading the communist manifesto. Of kid, course, reading right, the communist course, manifesto. They the would never give you the law by Bostia. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so we're, we're reading this and, um, and, and this kid and, and the professor asked what's, um, you know, what do you think of capitalism? Now, keep in mind, all he gave us to read was the Communist Manifesto. It's not like we read Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith or Human Action by von Mises or anything like that. It was just, here's the Communist Manifesto, 
right? The worst breakup letter with capitalism in history, right? Yeah, and in he, an English literature class yeah. written by a German. Yeah, and then he, and then he asked that, and and the student raises his hand and goes, "Well, I think it's the thing that's destroying this country." And so I asked him, "Like, well, what do you what do you think capitalism is?" Yeah. He goes, "Oh, it's this rigid base class structure where people at the top hoard the resource." Okay, well. For anybody that knows anything about cap- that is not capitalism. It's not, not even it, close yeah. to the definition of capitalism. Nothing that he said it, it is actually comes within the proximity of free markets, except for the fact that people can own property. And so when I, I asked him, I said, well, no, that's a caricature of capitalism. Do you know the actual definition? The professor jumps in and goes, do you? I said, yeah, it's the private ownership of the means of production and distribution through a system of voluntary exchange. And he's like, okay, we can use that. Like, see, all of a sudden, the dynamic was very different because the student thought, I'm in an environment where I can say this and it will be, you know, believed or at least people will be silenced. And the professor's got my back. And the moment that he was effectively questioned and the professor didn't have his back anymore and was facilitating discussion at that point, I said, okay, so capitalism at at its base, at its, you know, free markets at their base, I get to own stuff, you get to own stuff. And the only way that we can exchange is if we both agree to it. And presumably the only way we would both agree to it is if both of us think we're going to be better off after the transaction. Yeah. So what do you have against that? Like, what do you not like about that? And that started an entirely different conversation by just under, trying to understand the definition that he, in his mind, because if I had just started defending capitalism, well, in his mind, what I'm defending is a rigid based class structure where I, I want to be at the top of it hoarding resources. But by understanding what his interpretation of something was, now we could actually have a constructive discussion about you know why something might be good or bad. I'm pretty or, sure that college, college professor never expected to have a bunch of capitalists leave his class. <laughs> you know? I, I would like to revisit Jacob's question real quick um, in regards to empathy. Yeah. I, I think about two years ago, and this was in 2020, is probably right before your campaign wrapped up. Um, I realized that those on the left have the same level of conviction about what they believe, the same strength in the conviction that they have, no matter how wrong they are, as we do. Oh, I I would argue in a lot of cases it's It's more. Because they feel like they are morally superior for the positions that they hold and that those positions that they hold are going to help other people that are not already being helped. I agree. And so I think when we are having a conversation with someone who we disagree with, especially if they're combative, taking a moment to realize that they hold these positions just as tightly as I do, and then asking the question of, okay, well, how did they come to this conclusion to start with proposing that question? Um, but I think that that understanding that and then approaching the conversation from that standpoint uh, is a great practice in empathy. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I think um, Lydia, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. I was going to say, Nick, I think that you have a great point here and kind of spinning off what Tina was talking about. It's very important for us to take into account the perspectives of people who haven't really had a lot of real world experience. So I think that it would be great to ask some questions about stuff like lockdown. How did it affect you? What did you think was good about it? What did you think was bad about it? How could this be next time better done? Stuff like that. I feel like there are good neutral questions to just get a feel for where people are at, whether they're coming home from college or they're like your boomer aunt or whatever. (laughs) But I think, I think these questions are, really applicable to everyone at every age. And I think that's a perfect way to like bridge the divide between someone with less experience and someone with more experience. So if, if we, so let's, let's say, cause that was one of the questions did lockdown, you know, the position or the topic of lockdowns comes up, mm-hmm. right. you have someone that was very pro lockdown, thought it was absolutely necessary. You know, how do you engage with that person? And, you know, there, there's a there's a common theme, there, or there's a common philosophical approach I take with all of these questions. And the reason why we do that um, is not because we don't like the empirical approach. And just to kind of differentiate those, the empirical is one is more of kind of like the evidence-based approach on here's my stack of evidence, here's your stack of evidence, which evidence stack is higher. Um, that's not a perfect rendition. but And then the the more like the logical or the philosophical approach is to say, does does your argument make sense or is it sound? Is it sound reasoning? And the reason why I like using the logical one is because what I found is that it's so easy to manipulate statistics that if you're constantly relying upon, you know, this study or that study, 
all it takes is another study to come out five minutes later with, with new studies. So the, the first question that we should ask, it's not that the studies are worthless or bad. The first question we should ask is, is there sound reasoning involved here? What are the implications if we take the reason you've used to justify one thing, right? And, and then logically carry that out. And so with the lockdowns, one of the questions that I like to ask people when they're saying, you know, this was absolutely necessary is, is I'll bring up, you know, there was, um, you know, there, there was work done by people within the scientific community, within the economics community. Um, there, there was a letter that was signed. In fact, let me pull this up here real quickly, if I can find it here. The, the, the Great Barrington Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, yep. yeah, yeah. And, and basically what they were saying was is that, look, they weren't, they weren't claiming that COVID wasn't a, a serious medical threat. They weren't claiming any of that. They were simply saying that when, when we're talking about public policy with respect to lockdowns, we're not just talking about combating the disease, we're talking about all of the other implications of what happens if you completely shut down the economy, right. that, that there are other negative impacts as a result of that. And the response from Fauci, from social media, from the administration was to not simply address their arguments. It was really an attempt to discredit them, to kind of, in, in some ways, intimidate or, or bar them from public discourse. I'm not saying that they were all canceled and stuff like that, but there was there was a lot of there was a lot of intimidation that rised up. From oh, I, official I would channels. describe it as I would just absolutely describe it as canceling. There's so many people that had been saying for at this point, what, two years now? Mm -hmm. Because I think the Great Barrington Declaration came out in like October 2020. Technically, before Biden even come into office yet, yeah. but there were still Democrat governors all over the country that were locking their states down ruthlessly. And I, I mean, for literally like two years now, we had people that were like raising the alarm over things like, hey, we are, you know, the, the development of children is falling behind because of mask mandates and and even older kids that are in elementary school and middle school and high school are massively behind. Nick, we saw, you yeah. and I saw the report from the Department of Education here in Virginia yeah. about learning loss within the public school yeah, yeah. system. Nick, Nick lost, yeah. It, it was like it, it was like a 20-point loss or something like that across the board. It was like the yeah. worst test scores. But, and I, I know that test scores are not like the end all of, yeah. of deciding education attainment, but like from a test score perspective, it was like the worst results in like decades, like two or three decades. And this is just in Virginia. Other states had even worse lockdown policies. Remember, it was it was Whitmer that was like on the debate stage just a few weeks ago um, before she won re-election where she lied about, oh, it was just locked down for three months. No, it was like two years yeah. of lockdowns. And so people were raising the alarm about this for years and they were ignored and then when they couldn't be ignored any longer, they were ridiculed. And then when ridicule wasn't enough, they were just absolutely shut down on social media. Um, the, the the corporate media, you know, tried to discredit them repeatedly. Remember what CNN said about Joe Rogan with Ivermectin? Yeah, well, I, I and well, I think that's that's so to give you that, that you've made a great empirical argument for look at all these things that have essentially demonstrated that the concerns that they had were accurate. The, the question I like to go to on the on the kind of philosophical side is do you think it was appropriate for the government to for the, for the government and for you know large media outlets and whatnot to essentially misrepresent and try to shut them down for sharing these concerns do you think that was appropriate because what we're doing here is we're changing the nature of the dynamic because they can say, well, it, it could have been worse, right? And well, that's unfalsifiable. How do we know if it could have been worse? We can presume right. we can, but the moment I say was it appropriate for government entities and institutions, for these large groups like that, to attempt to shut down, to ban, to censor, was that okay? And and if the answer is yes, then then you see where the logical conclusion is. Like the, and logic, we call this uh, reductio ad absurdum, like reducing an argument to absurdity. Yes. And and a lot of times, what I've seen is this whole idea of like, well, no, it was so important. Like, well, okay, but looking back in hindsight. We, we know that there was actually problems with that, not to mention the fact that if, if you're supporting the sort of action which seeks to silence, intimidate, and silence the opposition, especially when we're talking about respected opposition, we're not talking about some rando in their mom's basement. We're talking about scientists, doctors, and economists out of like Harvard and Stanford, right? These are institutions which you you claim to support and you, and you claim to think are, are, are relevant why was it okay to shut it down in this? But I do think I that, that it's, uh, I do think that there is something to look at to see whether lockdowns worked or not. I, I would argue that there are two control groups you could look at. 
Florida and Michigan and make the comparison. And at that or point, New York. or New York, New yeah. York is actually a better example. New York, because yeah. Look at, look at the economies of these are two States that are almost the same size. They're both heavily urban, right? New York city dominates New York, South, South sure. Florida dominates Florida. And so the population is the same. The economies of both states are very large. Yeah. But then look at the different paths that they took with COVID. No, and so, I, and so I don't, at and that point, the whole but look lockdowns at how many people moved to Florida right. and left New Nick, York. Nick, I'm putting on my leftist hat. Okay. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Nick, I cannot believe that all these Donald Trump supporters and Republicans would put everybody's lives at stake and not wear a mask and not get the vaccine and not follow lockdowns. You want to kill grandma. They just they just don't care about anyone but themselves. Well, I think the the first thing I would I think the first thing I would ask with something like that is well well one so you you're saying that you do think that people should have taken the vaccine that Donald Trump spearheaded and well you and, know if it if it meant everybody's going to be safer yes okay all right so so then are, are you acknowledging at least at this point that. You really can't blame Trump for not pushing the vaccine since they literally did everything within the federal government's well, power. Well, I expedite. definitely think he did a lot to stir up the conversation and, tell, and show a lot of Republicans that they shouldn't get the vaccine. He just did it for the election. So, I, so right on, now we're now we're assuming intentions behind something. So, the question that I would ask there is that: Do you think that there's any reason why, um, let's say, for instance, a, a parent would not want their child. Is there any logical reason in your mind that a parent would not want their child to be masked all day, say within schooling? Well, I, I don't know about schools. I'm referring to everything outside of schools. But, but there were, so I guess here's my question. Then. Yeah. If, if you're willing to say that, well, outside of the, outside of the school, I don't know about the schools outside of the schools, though, it should have been mandatory, but inside the schools, maybe there's, maybe there's consideration. Well, the question that I would have then is, well, then why are you okay, not equally you, mad at the you've people? You've already that... succeeded. You've already put me in a spot where the argument can't continue because, yes. Well, no, it, it, the, the whole idea. So going back to what we were talking about before on on not not starting off the question with we know the lockdowns didn't work because I can come up with a, a thousand different hypothetical a thousand different hypothetical reasons why it actually it would have been worse had we not done X, Y or Z. Yeah, right. I can come up with a, a bunch of hypothetical reasons on why the only reason why you didn't want to do it is because you're greedy and selfish. You didn't care about the, the health concerns. Yeah. OK, but when you start asking questions like, OK, well, let, let me ask. Let me try to figure out where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's OK to silence people that had problems with this? Okay, that's a very different question, right? Because I'm no longer I'm no longer challenging whether or not they think lockdowns were necessary. I'm questioning this person that probably believes in you know democracy and you know freedom of inquiry. I'm asking them, do you think we should have used force, coercion, and intimidation to silence people who had different concerns about the policies that we were carrying out? Right? Not not they thought COVID wasn't. You could a also problem. ask them if they thought any of these lockdowns went too far. You yeah. know, like, for instance, yeah. Christian has brought up in Michigan where portions of stores were taped off and you couldn't buy certain seeds. items yeah. Yeah. just so it, within the same store. Yeah, I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to go over to the gardening section and buy seeds like what? Because they didn't right. want you outside. But, like but, some of these places, they were blocking you from going but outside. See, but the nature then here's what I'm trying to point out for everyone listening. Here's what I'm trying to point out. When you switch when you switch the discussion to first of all, not allow someone to automatically assume negative intention to somebody else. So you notice that the nature of the question I asked was, well, do you think that there's any reason why a parent, maybe with a student with this in these conditions, do you think there's any reason why they might not like this or they, they might not be concerned about this? Because the moment they say absolutely not, they're now being unreasonable. And, and there's a certain degree of unreasonableness that it's impossible to engage with. Right. But they've also demonstrated to everyone else at the table that they're just unreasonable. But the other side that what we're doing here, so we're, we're taking away that ability to just broadly categorize everyone as being evil if they don't agree with you. The second thing that we're doing is we're trying to get an idea on what level of violence are they comfortable with, mm -hmm. right? Because shutting someone down, censoring someone, especially when the government's doing it, we're, we're talking about an act of coercion backed up by the possibility of violence. And I want to know how comfortable are you with that? Because that you don't, again, you don't get to play the I'm the nice anti-fascist that just... When you're the one that wants to use government power to silence, intimidate, and shut down people who who have different concerns, not have no con different concerns than you do about a public a pol public policy approach to something like a pandemic. I think, I've got. I a, think. Hold on. I, okay. I'm so sorry. Um, no, it's fine. But 
I think there is one more thing that you could zero in on because if they brought up the whole you only wanted it to stay open because you're greedy, you could actually dive into how much money this industry has made yeah. off of the pandemic and yep. for in forcing people to get vaccinated and you know all these industries that actually raked it in. Um, big pharma, like suddenly these people are all you know apologists for big big pharma now, you know. So, well, no, no, they're not apologists for Big Pharma. They're apologists for Pfizer and Moderna. <laughs> which is Big Pharma. And so if you could actually zero in on their their aversion to greed, you could maybe get them to come your way on the greed aspect and go, but if you think this is greedy, look how much money. Do you think this over here is a perverse incentive? Yeah. All this money these people are making. Because it may have been yeah. free to you, but it was paid for by government dollars, so they were yeah. still getting paid. Yeah. I think the well, counter that you're going to get a lot, Nick, is uh, leading into like basically a, a, a counter argument like to, to, to what you said, I think the counter argument that, that a lot of people on the left is going to bring up is they're immediately going to pivot to Trump and, and be like, well, Trump tried to overthrow the government. I know family members that just, they will go out of their way to pick an argument with somebody who doesn't even want to talk about politics about Donald Trump and January 6th. Like, like that is like the Trump card, no pun intended that, <laughs> that, that so many people I know just, bring up whenever you can have an argument that Trump's name doesn't even get brought up until 15 minutes into it. And they will somehow pivot to January 6th and, and Trump as a political figure and how he tried to overthrow the government. And, and, you know, how could you be on the side of this? Yada, well, I mean, yada. If he, if he also tried to do that, he sucked at it. So it's, it was the worst coup yeah, ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know that, that people that are listening to our podcast. Well, and that'll are, be something we can probably get to that here. What were you saying, Lydia? So before we move on, I just wanted to mention, I really like, sorry, my voice is going a little bit today, but I really like the idea of kind of switching it to the censorship conversation because that's very broad. And from there, you can talk about like the news media. You can talk about no one trusting that. You can talk about us all agreeing on, you know, journalists being untrustworthy or whatever. And I like the idea of like pushing this kind of understanding that we all have similar goals in mind. We all want good things for our family. We all want everyone to be happy, fulfilled, et cetera. We want everyone to be healthy. We're just disagreeing on how to get there and things that have happened in the past. And I think that's a good mindset to operate from. Yeah. But I think we're about to move on to the next question. Well, and just to, just to close that one out real quick, just to close that one out for the whole idea of like the locks, you know, vaccinated lockdowns and whatnot. I, I think that one of the things that it's important to understand is when someone automatically starts assigning negative intentions, it becomes really easy to say, okay, if you believe that negative intentions are the only thing that can fuel this reasoning, then what about negative intentions for this reasoning? Right. And, and or usually, even just perverse and, incentives. And usually, usually that's when, um, usually that's when someone is going through the process of understanding that, if they're going to use that line of argumentation, it's just as easily used against themselves. And so let's both of us get away from that and right. move into, all right, the, the productive conversation is here were the concerns associated with what you wanted to do to combat uh, COVID. Here were my concerns with respect to what were the implications of what you were going to actually do. Now we can have a discussion based off of the empirical evidence that we have and everything else in order to determine what was appropriate, what was inappropriate, what worked, what didn't work. But but let's get away from the assigning of negative intentions. Nick, Jonathan in our volley chat asks how he could respond to someone saying that all politicians are corrupt. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know. Maybe don't disagree. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, look, look, whenever whenever we look at whenever we look at kind of like overly generalized statements, right? That's the, the logical term is when it's it's an overgeneralization. All politicians are this. Here, here's what I can tell you, at least from my experience, and maybe this sounds self-serving since I am, in fact, an elected official in the state legislature. Um, most of the people that I, I serve with, who, who I, who I like know, right? There's some of them I don't know very well, but I, I couldn't point to one and say, "Oh, this person is here purely for corrupt reasons." Now, there's some people I got my suspicions about, right? But what I found is, is far more common is you have people that get into this position. Um, they have some authority, they have some influence, they have some power, and they want to achieve certain things. And it, it becomes, by the same token, you have all these other influences that understand that you have that power, that authority, and that influence, whether it's to carry legislation or kill legislation or vote a certain way. And they, they also want to influence your decision. So everybody is actually kind of behaving in a rational manner with respect to trying to get something done that they think is good or positive. 
the the number of people that I would say are are literally in there and they're just out for themselves and they're just trying to figure out a way to enrich themselves up. I, I don't see that a lot, at least from firsthand experience, um, like within the state legislature. What I see are people that find themselves in a position where it becomes easy to convince yourself that in order to achieve you know, this great thing or, or in order for you to get into a position where you can achieve great things, well, you're going to, you're going to have to, you, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Right. And so the end result is, is that people find themselves in positions where they're either compromising on things that maybe they shouldn't compromise on or, or they're tempted by things that, you know, they, they should have set up better boundaries for. And, and a good example of that is when you when you're down in Richmond now in, in Virginia we have a we have a citizen legislature which we which means we spend the vast majority of our time in our districts at home like at our at our jobs which actually pay our bills right the legislature paycheck does not pay your bills um, in Virginia it, it's more of like a stipend for your your duties as a legislator. But when you get down there, all of a sudden, everybody wants to meet with you and everybody wants to talk with you. And it's, oh, it's delegate this and delegate that or senator this and senator that. And and there's, I mean, it's natural for people to feel like important within that setting. And then people also have a natural in, in incentive to want to, you know, be liked. Stay in good favor. And, and to stay in good favor and to understand how the system works in order to achieve things. And so a, a lot of the things that I think um, look like corruption or even could be considered corruption I would say most of them are not things that people went in deliberately thinking that's what mm -hmm. they were going to do. Yeah. And so the question that you have to really observe when you're when you're looking at people within elected office is what are what are they trying to do? If they're if they're constantly trying to expand their own power, they, they might actually have altruistic reasons for that or justifications for it. The problem is is that you're now working in a government incentive structure mm -hmm. where you get to use force to get what you want. And that becomes Really, that that is corrupting in and of itself. I, I would answer this a slightly different way that I think would be a little bit easier than going <laughs> through all of that because you almost have to have personal experience to know that politicians aren't all corrupt. Um, you'd you'd actually have to know them personally to know. Um, my my answer to that would be: so you believe that all politicians are corrupt. So why wouldn't you vote for the politicians that are voting whose policies would give them less power instead of more power? Mm -hmm. If you think they're corrupt, why do you vote for people who who require more power and yeah. more force? Why do you want to give the power of force to a corrupt politician? And so if they already are in the mindset of politicians are corrupt, I think you have more of an opening to say, then why would you give them more power? We, we used point. to, I used to run into this conversation with education. In fact, there was another, another question we yep. got from Volley Chat asking about education. And the, the whole idea was, is, you know, whenever I would say politicians should have less control over education, I would immediately have people from the left come in and say, I hate it when Republicans run education. I'd be like, okay, so how about we have politicians have less control over education? And it goes to your, yeah. your point, which is very good and succinct. And that's the idea that if you are concerned about the corrupting influences of politics, and that, that's why I like to say it. it's not that every politician is corrupt. It's that the very nature of politics has a lot of corrupting influence, right? There's a lot of incentives to be corrupt within politics. I mean, politics. power corrupts, absolute power yep. corrupts absolutely, yeah, right? Yeah, so, so the whole idea um, – the, the whole idea is, is if we acknowledge that those incentives are there, then that should naturally drive us to a position where we don't want elected officials that think that they're going to solve everything by the government having more power, mm -hmm. because then that's more opportunity for, for corruption within, within a realm that, again, relies on coercion in order to get what, it's want, get what it wants. Great point, for sure. Yeah, I think that's a, a great argument to make is that if everyone actually is corrupt, then the obvious best solution is to simply keep as much power away from them as humanly possible. I think that's a great way without pointing fingers at one party or another, just saying, you're right, let's make sure that they have less power, not yeah. more. Right. So look at their policies. And if their policies require more regulation and more control and power, Maybe don't vote for that person then. Good rule of thumb. Lenny, I know you reached out to your Twitter audience to see what some yes. of their thoughts were. So I have some that can really be combined really neatly into probably like one similar idea package, which was kind of what we went over with like required vaccinations and lockdowns and everything. So one of the questions that came up was the economy. 
And they're like, okay, so you just need to ask your family members why we have a five-pound turkey instead of a 15-pound turkey <laughs> and why we only get one slice this year or whatever. So I think what the broader question there would be is, is the country moving in the right direction? And from there, you could easily segue into Donald Trump. And from there, you could talk about the media. So it's really whatever direction you think is most important if you are kind of guiding the conversation or just letting the chips fall in fall where they may just ask people what they think about the state of the country um, and ask them what could possibly be done to improve some of this stuff like the price of gas we could talk about drilling and all these then you get into green policies so I really think that these little questions are good seeds for conversation that's not confrontational and I love that idea because I think that these are things I've always thought that these are things that we need to talk about we just need to figure out how to do it without getting our feelings hurt. Um, and the right likes to say that facts don't care about your feelings, but I think we all know on a very real level that that's not totally true. Um, and we need to take into account that we have to be empathetic and we need to hear the other person out. Um, so I think that if you tie those three questions together, is the country moving in the right direction? Did Donald Trump make things better or worse? And then is the media trustworthy? You can have a very diverse range of conversations. You just need to be prepared for some of the strong feelings around like Donald Trump. And I think that everybody can really join hands together on the whole media not being trustworthy question for sure. <laughs> um, and then the last question that I had on my list is about trans people, which I know is very kind of touchy. Tina, you were saying that you had kind of a personal experience with this. And then I don't know how much people want to get into that at Thanksgiving. The only thing that I would point out with this one would be like, there was a New York Times article talking about puberty blockers, and you could really just recommend people go over there and read that. I think that's a good strategy with all of these topics is to kind of go into it prepared with like, the right reading list to be like, okay, well, you can just look at, you know, Gallup polling to see what people think about um, the media. You can go to New York Times if you want to see the the news's latest take on well, see, puberty blockers. But the, the thing the thing I get worried about on that is if, like, I know how I feel when I make a statement or I make an argument and somebody says, you need to read this article. Like. Nah. Why don't you say, <laughs> I, I, do I said, I'm, I'm probably not going to do that, right? I'm, I'm yeah. probably, not because I'm not interested in, in researching on a particular topic. Oh, you know they're going to have Google open at the table. Well, but it's because yeah. <laughs> if you're going to if you're going to recommend something to me, then you need to explain why it was relevant to you and why it should be relevant to me. Like, That's this a is, great point. This is a, this is this a, is why I liked Lydia's question though, because it's not about a specific publication. Like like here's an example. Gallup recently, like a couple of weeks ago, came out with a new poll about Americans' perception of the media as an institution. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like general trust in media, not <laughs> not a specific site, just general trust in media. And the results are just mind boggling. 14% of Republicans say they have a great or fair amount of trust and confidence in mass media in the United States. 27% of independents. 70% of Democrats. Yeah. It's <laughs> it is the largest spread in recorded history going yeah. back to 1970 when this question was first yeah. asked. Well, and, and, and did I, you notice, sorry, did you notice, Christian, before we move on, where it started to diverge so widely? Yes. Right it, in 2016. Take a guess. Take, yeah. uh, Lydia, Lydia gave it away. <laughs> I know, I 2016 is when <laughs> the gap, I mean, th there had been a gap really since the, the, the millennium, since 2000, yeah. but it was like 35 to 38% of Republicans said they had trust. And it was like in the low 50s or high 40s for Democrats until 2016. And then the Democrat trust went from 51% to 70%. And Republican yeah. trust went from 32% to 14% in yeah. one right. year. And it's never recovered well, ever the, since. The other thing, the thing that I think is interesting about those conversations is because I, I've seen I've seen people on the left explain this where it's like, oh, well, that's because reality has a bent toward the left or a bent toward liberalism. Um, no, but the media certainly does. Well, and, yeah. and I, I think that I think that. Well, I also think there's this this false dichotomy where people on the right also look at it as well. You know, back in my day, the media were honest, and it's like no, no, they weren't. The media. I'm sorry, but Walter Cronkite. I remember my grandfather referring my grandfather, no. who was a Democrat, referring to Walter Cronkite as the head red. Right? Like okay, he, was okay. not a, he was he was not a fan. Um, but I, I think what and now keep it. My my grandpa was registered Democrat, always voted Republican. You, you have to tell the story. I, I'll tell a different time. Um, so the, I really think that's like the huge, that, that, that issue like encompasses every single one of Lydia's points because like 
there's people that I know on the right, including myself to some degree, who like I, I'm I'm getting to a point where I'm starting to just view Democrats as people that just buy regime propaganda at this mm. point, and, like, like at face value. It, because how many- I, I think COVID COVID made me kind of feel that way too. I felt like they could literally come out tomorrow and say wear a paper bag over your head and you would do <laughs> and there'll it. be people that'll do it. And, and, there, and their there, story people, constantly changed. Like there's people that dismissed like the Hunter Biden laptop. And now, Oh, two years later, now that we're safe and we've got Biden yeah. in office and Trump's out. Now we can talk about it. Yeah. And, and like, it's just so, and, and I brought it up earlier, right. With, with, with all the examples of like learning loss and job loss and everything and the media just papered it all over. So the, the question is, is how do you talk about that? So it, it's easy for, again, the only way you get that conversation from direct hostility where they're throwing out their own facts, figures, and stats against you, and you're responding with your own facts, figures, and stats, right? Because you can do that all day long. The, the question is, is that, okay, what can we agree on? Well, well, can we agree on that media companies operate off of incentives? Yes. Okay. So we have some media that operates off of certain incentives, and they appeal to the right. We have other media that operate off of certain incentives and they appeal to the left. Okay, so that probably affects their perspective and their analysis when they look at a particular issue. Can we agree on that? Yes. Yeah. Okay, and then we can probably also surmise that MSNBC, ABC, NBC, you know, based off of the composition of their their journalists, their news anchors and everyone else, they're probably going to give you the left-wing perspective on a particular topic. And you can probably surmise based off of Fox News, right, and and some of the other some other media, you know, OAN, that they're going to give you a right wing perspective on the news. So the 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 thing that I usually like to come to when a question like this comes up is, it, it's not that everyone is necessarily lying to you, although I do believe that absolutely happens. Like the moment the moment here's here's where I think there's a major departure. The moment I see any media personality personality openly advocating to shut down or censor. Somebody else. Now I'm like, you're a propaganda artist now. Like you're, you're, you are a court, you know, report recorder. That's what you are. You're the person that is just doing what the regime tells you to do at this point. Um, I, I have no respect for that. Now, if, if you're saying I'm going to give you the left wing perspective on the news. Okay. Like you, you've, you've honest about what, what you've done and how you see it. But the moment you call for censoring people that yes. disagree with you, you're not just reporting your, your well, and, and propaganda. I, and I would say my, my problem at that point is not only, especially when it's the whole idea like, no, 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 some, some things are just so dangerous to the public well-being that they have to be censored. Oh, okay, great. Shouting fire in a crowded building when, when you know there is no fire. Got it. But shutting down a doctor because they say they have questions about Fauci's implementation with, with respect to the vaccine or public policy. No, you don't get to shut that down because you right. think it's dangerous. Otherwise, somebody else gets to shut you down because they think what you're saying is dangerous. That's the whole point. And, and that's the area where I feel like when the question of the media comes up, I'm not going to talk with the leftists and try to convince them that all they're listening to is left-wing propaganda I'm going to I'm going to suggest that most of the major media outlets up there have a political ideology which influences their reporting both right and left. That like, is a way better Nick this is kind of the whole reason that we do this show right here because you just uh, approach this topic from a way more positive perspective than I know a lot of people instinctively yeah. do when they're on the right and they're confronted by somebody on the left because something on the left immediately will just say, well, you just listen to Fox News all day long. And even if I say, I don't even own a TV. Yeah. <laughs> like, but that's still not good enough because then suddenly you get dragged into the mud about a debate over, well, then you just watch MSNBC all day long and then it just turns into a shouting yeah. match. But you're right. asking questions, right? And you're saying, well, you know, is it fair to say that the media operates on incentive structures? And then you extrapolate out from that. I, I love that path that you just took because at no point in time can an, a, a person who, even if they disagree with you intensely, can an, can a reasonable person get into, into just a mudslinging match with you and say, well, you're just listening to fake news, yada, yada. And then, I, I mean, we've all done this, right? Where, where we want to have that like intellectual discussion with a family member around the dinner table during the holiday season. And it just, you know, it, what's the quote from Napoleon? No plan survives contact with the enemy. Yeah. Right. Like, like it just goes in a completely different direction than what well, you're well, anticipating. One of, one of the, one of the best things that you can do, like you saw when, when we went through this hole and Hamilton, I'm going to put on my leftist hat. I'm going to ask you this, you know, why would people not care about the safety of other people? 
one of the best questions that you can ask whenever a question is posed, it doesn't matter what it is, it could be about Trump, could be about the media, could be about January 6th, could be one of the, one of the most important things that you can ask back is like, okay, is there any situation where a reasonable person could come to a different conclusion about this in your mind? Like, could, could a reasonable person have a different view with respect to mask mandates? And what, what might their, what might be informing that position? Because now you're forcing them to say, okay, is there, is there one? And, and what it does is again, you're opening up, you're opening up the other person within their own presuppositions. Now you better be prepared to have that done back to you, right? You better be, you better be able to at least be prepared to say, you know what? I totally understand someone, especially early days of COVID totally understand someone being so concerned because initial reports said this was going to kill 200 million people across the globe saying, look, we got to do something because we don't know what's going to happen yet. And, and we, I get it. I, I, I do. I get that. Um, what I don't get is as more information comes in and as we start to become more aware of what is going on and, and what, who the real threat groups are and everything else, not leaving that initial assumption. Um, that's the part that I don't understand. I need someone to explain that to me. And, and that's the part where, again, you're, you're starting to have this constructive back and forth on, on trying to help me understand why someone would be so passionate about lockdowns and masks now, right? After your third booster, <laughs> yeah. right? Like now I, I don't, now I'm confused. Initially, I was not confused. I might have wanted to make a different decision for me or my family. Because I, I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't necessarily sure what this vaccine was going to mean, especially for my small children that hadn't, you know, that were going through puberty at the time, right? I, I was concerned about that, but now you're telling me, after everything else that we know, I, I'm still supposed to behave as if this is the this is the solution to everything. I don't yes. understand that. Please, I want to, I would like to understand it, and then make them explain it because more often than not, again, people have gotten into their tribes now. And it was Joe Rogan that said wearing the mask is the left's version of the MAGA hat. Hmm. Right? Interesting it, point. It was this outward symbol of loyalty toward a particular approach, which they saw as being morally superior. He's correct. I think this is the perfect, empathetic, compassionate way to talk to your family this Thanksgiving. And I think this is perfectly encapsulating all these different questions we looked at. The main underlying theme is that you want to go into it with the understanding that your relationship with your family is the most important thing. And in order to kind of preserve that in the minefield that is the holiday season, we got to make sure that we're sincerely asking caring questions that give them an opportunity to explain themselves. I think that's such a good place to wrap for this episode for sure. I don't know. You guys had such, such great input. I feel like we were more general than we were planning to be at first, but I think that's great. I think putting people into the right mindset to talk to their families and kind of ex uh, get them to the right expectation for how it will probably work if they go into it with the correct mindset is pivotal. Perfect. Great work, everyone. Thank you so much. Well, Lydia and Nick, we'll have an opportunity to probably revisit some of these topics when we get closer to Christmas, because that's, <laughs> I mean, think about it. That's another holiday season, yeah. right? Yeah. Where yeah. large family gatherings happen. And many of the same things that, that is going to be brought up at the dinner table during Thanksgiving is probably going to be brought up again during Christmas. So yeah. honestly, like, like if you're an audience member and you're listening to us and you participate in like volley and stuff like that, I think it'd be probably very beneficial to like throw us some questions that like straight up questions that you're anticipating will happen again in about a month yeah. from now um, or three weeks from now, because the, I guarantee you, you know, more family gatherings happen probably during Christmas than during Thanksgiving. So this is kind of like teeing up <laughs> in some ways what could end up yeah. being another, you know, another uh, contentious uh, well, gathering in about a month. This, this is the prep. And to, and to, again, thank thank you everybody for joining us. Thank yes. you for the questions that you sent. Also want to make sure everyone knows that we are going to be, we're changing the schedule up a little bit. So this one, this one is coming out as normal on Tuesday, just the way you nope. anticipated. However, we're Tomorrow. obviously, we're not going to drop, we're not going to drop a episode on Thanksgiving because you need right. to be focused on your family, <laughs> not us on Thanksgiving. Yep. Um, and you need to be, you know, applying this and then telling us how it worked out. But what we are going to do, because What's everyone doing on Tuesday and Wednesday before Thanksgiving? They're either traveling or they're preparing. So you're either right. stuck on a plane, stuck on a car, and you got to listen to something. You might as well listen to us. Plus, we're going to go next next episode. We're going to do something. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the yeah. strange, some of the interesting, some of the fun Thanksgiving traditions that we have uh, sitting around this table. And um, 
I, I will say one of them, one of them might include Japanese samurai movies, but I will say no more right now. Anyways, thank you for joining us and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.